Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Deforestation accounts for a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. We lose precious carbon sinks and irreplaceable biodiversity as flora and fauna lose their rich habitat to the dearth of monoculture plantations, including for pulp, rubber, soy, and palm oil. The latter is near ubiquitous in our food and household products and masquerades under various names, warranting diligence in its avoidance as certifications of sustainability may not be reliable. The clearing of forests for plantations displaces indigenous communities and pollutes the air and water of surrounding populations. The mistreatment of workers tantamount in certain areas to enslavement, including of children, runs rampant in the deforestation industry. It's a great exemplum of how environmental destruction and violations of human rights are inextricably linked. And yet, with media campaigns and public oversight, we can change this, and we will. I spoke to Atelier Gournet, a senior advisor in the campaign and legal director at Mighty Earth, about these issues and more. Hi, Atel. Welcome to Gravity. Thank you so much for having me. So you're a senior advisor in Mighty Earth, which is part of the Center for International Policy and chaired by former Congressman Henry Waxman, who co-authored key environmental legislation in the United States, including the 1990 reauthorization of the Clean Air Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act. You're a nascent organization, yet you've achieved so much in just two years. You've promoted and conducted exposés and media campaigns on the impacts of deforestation by industry and its impact on public health, including the haze in Indonesia. And you've managed to enter into agreements with large companies that are pledged to change their practices. May you please elaborate more on the mission of Mighty Earth and its work? Sure. Be a pleasure. So Mighty Earth is an environmental organization, and one of our key focuses is to try to end deforestation in industrial agriculture. You know, we all understand that we need forests in order for the planet to survive, right? And the number one threat to forests, by and large, worldwide, is actually industrial agriculture. So even if we get it right in terms of switching over from fossil fuels to renewable energy, a whole host of other important changes that humanity needs to undertake, if we don't save our forests, we're going to be in extremely deep trouble. So that's kind of our bread and butter at Mighty Earth is really trying to save forests from the worst practices by the biggest companies that are out there. And we look at industrial agriculture-driven deforestation in, in Asia by palm oil companies, most of all, but in the Mekong, also rubber. Rubber is a huge driver of deforestation in the Mekong region and in Laos, Cambodia, Burma, Vietnam, that part of the world. We also look at um, large-scale deforestation by the soy industry in Latin America. Soy is kind of the hallmark problem of that region, just the way palm oil is the signature problem for Indonesia and Malaysia, for the forest there. And we started a really interesting campaign in West Africa that's gone global uh, to try and end deforestation in the chocolate industry for cocoa. Now, I wanted to discuss the report in 2015. The Food and Agricultural Association of the United Nations reported in 2015 in its Global Forest Resources Assessment that the global loss of forests since 1990 has been about 129 million hectares, which is equivalent 
to about the size of South Africa. The report also noted that the period 1990 to 2015 saw a 110 million hectare increase in planted forests, amounting to 7% of all global forests. Now, the FAO concluded in this report that deforestation appeared to be slowing down. However, other reports show the obverse. A report released in June this year by the University of Maryland concluded that 2017 was the worst year on record for tropical tree cover loss, which is gravely concerning, not merely because the tropics are more biodiverse, but even worse, that the world lost 15.8 million hectares of tropical tree cover or the size of Bangladesh last year. Now, some of this loss may not be directly due to deforestation, but due to stochastic storms. But these storms have increased in frequency and intensity because of deforestation. Now, what is your assessment of the current rate of global deforestation, and is it increasing or decreasing? So, a couple of things on this question of whether deforestation is increasing or decreasing. The first is that we have to separate out deforestation caused by humankind directly and deforestation that I actually call our indirect responsibility. What do I mean by that? Okay, if we're chopping down a forest, clear cutting around the edges or as often happens, nibbling inside the forest, turning it a little bit into Swiss cheese, we tend to make the forest more like a tinderbox, right? Because by nibbling away and creating a kind of Swiss cheese effect, we dry out the forest, right? We damage and degrade the forest's rain-making capabilities. This is one of the reasons why our human-driven deforestation, for example, in the Amazon or in Indonesia, has been directly responsible for a drying out of the forest in those two regions and also for something called the fire seasons, right? You never really used to see a fire season in the Amazon, but now we see it all the time. And in Southeast Asia and in Indonesia and in Malaysia, of course, you know, there's always been some fires around the world in, in forests, but nothing on the scale that we see now. So we've essentially created this tinderbox effect and I therefore tend to attribute these crazy fires that we see in some of the world's biggest, most important forests, forest regions, I see it as our responsibility too. You know, in, in 2015, there was a particularly dry year in Indonesia. Um, we'd create a kind of tinderbox effect by draining all these peatlands to put palm oil there. We deforested up the wazoo, right? Humanity has not been kind to Indonesian forests, but the biggest drivers there are the pulp and paper industry and the palm oil industry, but rubber, cocoa, other commodities, coffee have also been very harmful to forests there. And so we saw these just spectacular, unstoppable fires, fires that actually rage deep into the ground. They go sometimes as far as 20 meters into the ground. The whole earth is on fire and the fires move um, sideways through the earth, these rich, carbon-rich peatland um, soils and, um, and, and create immense clouds of toxic smog that go all the way to Guam, all the way to Cambodia. You know, the 2015 haze killed about 100,000 people, it's the best estimate, but also we're talking about millions of people being, being sick as well, so it's mortality and morbidity. But to get back to your fundamental question, if we add on the direct and the indirect, 
deforestation and we consider it all as being human driven on some level, then definitely we're increasing. We see increasing deforestation by humans. Second thing to answer that question, I actually feel it's more important to disaggregate it region by region. If we look at big global trends, we sort of lose track of who's responsible, right? Who's in charge? Who is causing this? Who is failing? You know, one of the most interesting things that we saw in Brazil and the Amazon, that actually the Brazilians had turned around their deforestation problem for soy in the Amazon, right? They brought it from 30% to around 1% for a decade as a result of the Brazil soy moratorium. So looking at those isolated windows where we see hope and contrasting that with the negative trends that we see in Brazil for other deforestation, it helps us understand, okay, the soy industry is doing a great job in one place in Brazil, but they're doing a terrible job driving deforestation in the savanna called the Cerrado. This helps us then hold them accountable and move solutions. So I actually believe we should be looking at this in a disaggregated region by region, country by country, commodity by commodity way. I think that's more useful and important than what the FAO is doing with its aggregate global research. So if we break it down, and I think you briefly mentioned this before, that rubber is more concentrated in the Mekong Delta and soy in Brazil, but which commodity agriculture is is planted in different parts of the world. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So each region has its curses, right? Each region has its specificities. Um, The four global titans of deforestation are are quite region-specific. So the four titans are palm oil and pulp and paper, disproportionately concentrated in Asia and ravaging Asian forests, and soy and cattle, which are disproportionately ravaging Latin American ecosystems, including forests, but also savannas and other ecosystems. And then you have right under those four titans, um, lesser curses, right? The second tier curses like cocoa, which is especially concentrated in West Africa, where it's driven one third of all deforestation in the Ivory Coast and Ghana. And those two countries have been winning the Africa Cup of deforestation for decades. Um, you know, they come in basically top number one, number two, or number three, or number four, depending on the year. So cocoa is kind of the curse of West Africa, but it also impacts, obviously, negatively forests in Cameroon, in Latin America, in the Amazon, in Asia. And then you see rubber, uh, which is very concentrated in the Mekong. That's where it's the most deleterious to forests. And then you see some commodities like coffee, very bad for forests, but more scattered around the world. You've raised very different commodity agricultural products. There's soy, rubber, cocoa, coffee, uh, which is more scattered. But are any of these worse than the others? Absolutely. It's fair to say that full sun monocultures are a catastrophe for the environment and therefore eventually for humanity. Um, So sometimes, you know, they lead to short-term yield improvements and certainly can be helpful for adding corporate profits. But their monocultures, full sun monocultures are by and large absolute catastrophes for the environment. Some commodities lend themselves better to agroforestry, which is kind of the friendly face of agriculture, right? So um, soy is a full sun monoculture. 
palm oil overwhelmingly sulfur monoculture. Rubber is a little bit more mixed. It has the potential and capacity to be done in a more agroforestry kind of way. Um, and cocoa and coffee have the highest potential for being forest-friendly agroforestry models. So both cocoa and coffee, you could say, are meant to be married to forests. They like being under shade. They love being surrounded by trees. They need the moisture uh, content in the air that forests and surrounding forests provide. They, they, um, they lend themselves well to a, a, a kind of way of growing things that's gentler on the planet. But there's some commodities that are, I think, almost doomed to turn biodiversity gems into biodiversity deserts, right? Just soy being maybe the classic. And when you think about what it does, um, not just to biodiversity, but to soil health, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. It's, it's a disaster that we can see above ground. Of course, it's, um, you know, species collapsing uh, and being pushed to the brink of extinction, but also underground. This invisible hecatomb is also piling up. And um, I'm sure many of your listeners have read this book that came out recently about how trees talk to each other in intact forest landscapes and how you can map and track um, communications. Um, I guess you could say we're anthropomorphizing a bit, but, you know, communications between trees and how when you go to a full sun monoculture plantation, you see that it's completely silent. I mean, that's a an interesting way of raising our awareness about what we're doing. It's a graveyard. If anyone's ever gone to a monoculture, it's even discernibly silent. You can tell in some plantations that there's very little fauna there. It's very disturbing. How many species can survive? The orangutan, 99% identical to us in DNA. The forests that are cleared for the plantations that are coming in Borneo, can the orangutans survive in that environment? What species can survive? And where are they going? So almost nothing can survive in really large full-sun monocultures, right? Because these are like food deserts for insects, birds, mammals. Um, you know, so of course we see horrible imagery of orangutans being poached, being attacked, beaten and killed by folks um, who come across them as we encroach further and further into their habitat. But by and large, right, larger species are just dying because of habitat loss, right? They're starving to death. And we think the best estimate is that 100,000 orangutans have been killed in 16 years. So the answer to your question is no. Orangutans cannot survive with the kind of full-sun monoculture palm oil pulp and paper model that we've adopted and unless we change, they're going to go completely extinct, right? Our cousin, this is our family. They're going to die out in our lifetime. It's affecting people too. The soil is impacted, but also the water. There's agricultural residue that goes into fresh water that people in the surrounding areas drink. There's also the residue from the fertilizer. May you please elaborate more on the impact of freshwater sources? You know, I think it's very tempting to focus on charismatic megafauna, right? We look at the ravages of palm oil and we think about 100,000 orangutans killed. We look at the ravages of cocoa and we look at the fact that the Ivory Coast, which is obviously named for ivory, which is coming from elephants, has something like less than 400 elephants left alive today, right? Or 
the fact that their chimpanzee population is crashing and that most primates are either endangered or heading towards endangered or already extinct in, in the Ivory Coast because of cocoa. But, you know, of course, what's less interesting to humans is still extremely important. It's the devastation that we see in terms of insect life collapsing um, and the biodiversity that's underground, that's invisible to us, but that is the bedrock, that's the bottom of the pyramid of any system is soil. It's all the microorganisms that live in the soil. You know, when you're dumping uh, extremely hazardous chemicals and pesticides and fertilizers like paraquat and chemicals that are banned by Rotterdam and Stockholm conventions, chemicals that are, you know, not just hazardous for humans, of course, you know, all the farmers who are handling them are at risk. We often don't think about that because they tend to be extremely poor and marginalized. They have relatively little voice and certainly Western consumers don't hear their voice much, but these chemicals are, 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 are pushing the microorganisms in the soil to collapse over and over and over. We see this in Indonesia with palm oil. We see this in West Africa with cocoa. We see this in Latin America with soy. You know, I think something like 99% of um, the soy in either Argentina or Paraguay is uh, GMO soy, and it's it's essentially a vehicle for chemicals. Right? The, the 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 genetic modification of the soy is designed to make the soy able to withstand extremely harsh chemicals that are poured on it, which kill everything else. So the the GMO nature of the soy itself. Is, is designed in order to help boost sales of um, pesticides and pesticides. So, um, no, we're, we're seeing collapses of bird populations and bat populations. This wonderful study led by a scientist named Ellen Warren Thomas from this university in the UK, the University of East Anglia, um, actually delved into the impact of really destructive rubber plantations and what it does to biodiversity. And these researchers found that birds, bat, and beetle species basically declined by up to 75% in forests that were converted to rubber, right? So that means we're losing three quarters of birds, bats, and beetles. Okay, you know, birds and bats, and especially beetles, are, we you know, humans are not as fond of them as we have polar bears and these other charismatic megafauna like orangutans, which are so close to us, right? We feel this kinship with chimpanzees and orangutans that makes us a bit more horrified when we're wiping them out. But, you know, beetles are a good marker for other insects and insects, and, you know, they're sort of close to the bottom of the, the pyramid. If we lose them, the whole biodiversity pyramid begins to collapse. So when you see that three quarters of birds, bats, and beetles are vanishing because of rubber, it's just a, a, a sign of probably an even greater um, impact underground. And of course, larger mammals that depend on these species for food, you know, the sort of apex predators vanish at a corresponding rate. Right. Everything is so inextricably linked to everything else. We can't simply just focus on megafauna because we think they're cute or we love elephants, for instance. We want to focus our efforts to preserving elephants and we don't care about beetles. But if we don't protect the beetles or look at what's happening with the beetles in the end, not just the elephant and the beetle, but even us, we're all impacted. 
we can't um, we can't really siphon off the environment into and, and fauna into different categories to protect it. Right, we have to look at it from a holistic angle. Absolutely, I think you know we always forget that if we destroy the biodiversity of um, the, the, the little organisms that are at the very base of the pyramid, it, ha- it shoots up and the impacts are felt all the way up to the apex predators. You know, I think of humans as being apex predators. We're the ultimate apex predator. And of course, you can see sort of concentric circles of impacts on humans, right? Where the first people to be impacted tend to be indigenous communities whose way of life or, or just other forest-dependent communities whose way of life depends unhealthy forests. So, you know, they might be hunter-gatherers, they might be um, very dependent on non-forest timber products and harvesting things like forest honey or rattan or um, uh, plants that have medicinal um, qualities. You know, by and large, at least 90% of our medicine comes from uh, extracts from forests. And so, you know, the, the, the most traditional medicine is, is literally taken from forests and our medicine is taken from scientists who've been extracting uh, elements from forests for, for a long time. But, so, you know, the first circle of impacted people are these forest-dependent communities and indigenous communities. But then, you know, pretty fast, the other circles start spreading out, right? You destroy forests, you destroy the rivers that run through them, right? Because, of course... That a healthy, a healthy river is tied to the forest around it, and then next thing you know, everyone who's dependent on that river is going to start dying. So, like the the dams that we're seeing coming down the Mekong and killing the Mekong are rapidly affecting food security for all the people who fish traditionally. And then it goes even further, right? You have once you start destroying forests on a large scale, the way we saw in Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, and you start triggering these a forest fires, like we were talking about the, the forests that have been driving that toxic haze. Then next thing you know, there's unstoppable raging fires with toxic smog that make millions of people sick and kill hundreds of thousands of people over many years. Now, it might be kind of invisible, right? Because PM 2.5, which is the most toxic element of this toxic smog, is extremely small. That's precisely why it's such a good killer. It goes deep within your lungs and even into your bloodstream. But, you know, we are all affected. And then, of course, most broadly, you kill forests, you're accelerating climate change. And climate change is going to affect so many of us in so many ways. So I'd like to discuss the public health impact a little later, but right now I'd like to focus on climate change. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems nearly a quarter of total carbon emissions annually are from deforestation, uh, which is staggering. Uh, And I'd like to discuss in particular the impact on carbon emissions from burning the rich peatlands in Indonesia as part of forest clearing in preparation for palm oil plantation. Here's a statistic that almost nobody knows. But Indonesia in 2015, which is a dry year, major forest fires started rippling through the country. These raging peat fires sent out just spewing waves of toxic smog across the region. Those emissions were so bad that they outstripped the entire U.S. economy's emissions 
for 38 out of 56 days in a row. Keep in mind, the U.S. economy, the economy in the world, is about 19 times the size of Indonesia's economy. So the idea that the haze emissions alone from Indonesia would top our emissions in the U.S. for the entire economy. It's just spectacular. And that's, you know, raging forest fires that are of no benefit to anyone. We're not using that. It's not emissions that are coming from making a car. It's not emissions that are coming from, you know, manufacturing materials for school benches. It's, it's nothing useful for anyone. It's just destruction. That's an indirect impact of what we've done to forests. It's directly contributing to climate change in the most spectacular way. Which causes more deforestation and more loss in biodiversity. And it's this uh, downward spiral, right? Downward cycle that we've entered into. Um, and again, we have to address it holistically and address it fast, right? Um, so I'd like to now go back to uh, the public health impact and focus on this depletion and pollution of freshwater sources for surrounding local populations, as well as this haze. I read an article that you wrote that over 100,000 people died in just one year in Indonesia from these fires, which were started intentionally to clear forests for these plantations. And that's, a, that's an incredible and such a distressing number. So actually, it's um, scientists from Harvard and Columbia that teamed up and did a study. They found that the 2015 haze crisis in Indonesia likely caused 100,300 premature deaths just in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. So not even counting places where the haze did go, like Guam, Cambodia, Thailand, et cetera, but where it was a bit less uh, impactful. But keep in mind, the haze that wafted from Indonesia to China was so bad that the Chinese government complained about the haze. When the Chinese are complaining to you about your air pollution, you know you've done something wrong. So we're talking about really, really severe health impacts. And that's just the mortality, but the morbidity is thought to be extremely high as well. We're talking about millions of people who were sickened, um, right? There was a state of emergency declared in many of the um, provinces of Indonesia and Singapore. You know, we saw a huge uptick of hospitalizations, at least half a million people it's thought half a million people in Indonesia sought medical care because of the haze. And our best estimate is that 43 million people just on the island of Sumatra and Kalimantan alone were inhaling toxic fumes. So, right, and that can have a latent effect. It doesn't mean oh, that... And that's, 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 those are only deaths. The deaths that I just mentioned are only caused by PM 2.5. Right. We also believe that people probably died because of all the toxic, heavy metals that are in the air, like cadmium and arsenic, um, you know, the, the terrible chemicals that get poured all over um, palm oil plantations. When they burn, that stuff goes right into the air and you breathe it in. People die from the ozone that's in that toxic smog. There's so many things in that toxic smog, you know, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, the, the, the rates of all those poisonous elements in the smog are so high, so far above what the WHO deems to be safe. 
and that affected millions of people, including children, old people. Absolutely lethal on so many levels. Has anyone been found accountable? You know, Singapore passed its exciting law to try and um, hold companies accountable for burning uh, and causing toxic smog that wafted over Singapore. But unfortunately, uh, they chickened out and they have never enforced that law. It's an excellent law and it just remains on the books as a paper tiger. I'd like to discuss these paper tigers because from my understanding, several countries have excellent laws on paper and that the rampant deforestation and uh, these intentional fires in several countries, including Indonesia, are on the books illegal, but the, the laws are not enforced in places like Brazil because they don't have the capabilities or the political will. Now, may you please elaborate more on paper tigers with respect to deforestation? So I actually have a great deal of respect for the capabilities of law enforcement agencies in uh, countries like Brazil, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And I think when they want to, they can absolutely enforce the law. I do not believe that it's as much of a capability issue as people often claim it is. I think it's a political will issue. I believe that we have a problem of really severe lack of political will and or even in some cases, companies lobbying effectively to put politicians basically in their pocket or to influence political outcomes in a way that are beneficial for their bottom line but harmful for everybody else and for the planet. So, you know, here's an example of an excellent law on the books. In July 2017, Indonesia's Financial Services Authority issued this wonderful regulation on sustainable finance, saying every bank has to ensure that companies that they finance abide by Indonesian environmental regulations. And let's remind ourselves, Indonesian law prohibits burning. Not just Indonesian law, by the way. Even the, the religious authorities of Indonesia put out a fatwa against burning, which is quite fascinating. But Indonesian law, just to come back to that, prohibits burning. There's all kinds of pretty good rules on the books about protection of um, national parks and forest reserves, um, protected areas. There's great rules on the books about corruption, right? But that financial services authority regulation has just barely been enforced. Right. So who is going after the dirty money that's financing these horrors? Essentially, hardly anybody. <laughs> that is a distressing fact to hear. I'd like now to move to uh, another aspect of human rights violations as a direct result from deforestation. And that is the atrocious labor circumstance. So we have workers that <clears throat> are performing, <clears throat> excuse me, so we have workers that are performing very hazardous uh, work and they are required to have certain uh, protective gear, they're required to have certain other protections and it appears that they do not have any of these protections, that they're not even properly being paid, that they're treated horribly, even tantamount to a form of enslavement 
because they're in very isolated regions. And one of these isolated regions is the Amazonian camps in Brazil. So may you please elaborate more on labor violations that are directly associated with deforestation? It's safe to say that when companies trash the planet, they often don't treat their workers very well. We see typically the most destructive environmental practices going hand in hand with the worst human rights practices in corporate supply chains, right? So the companies in the fishing industry that are the most closely tied to seafood slavery are often also the most closely tied to IUU fishing. The companies that have been trashing West Africa's rainforest, which used to be a biodiversity gem for cocoa, uh, often also have turned a blind eye to some of the worst labor rights violations imaginable, right? So just to give you a sense of the size of the problem, still today, we have 2.1 million children working in cocoa. The chances that you have eaten child labor chocolate are so high, I would say if you eat chocolate on a regular basis, it's almost like 99.9% certain that you've eaten child labor. And let's remind ourselves, this is not some kind of nice, friendly, I work with my parents on the weekends to help out in the family farm type thing, but I go to school. No, 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 no. This is child labor and cocoa. We're talking about uh, extremely hazardous, unpleasant, difficult activities, right, that involve dangerous chemicals, machetes, extremely heavy loads. This is why it is thought that well over 93% of the 2.1 million kids working in cocoa are in, quote, the worst forms of child labor. But it's not just cocoa. We see that in palm oil, it's extremely common to have uh, slavery or work conditions that are akin to slavery, like debt bondage. You know, it's very common to have people have their papers confiscated, especially if they're migrant workers. Um, you get your papers confiscated so you can't leave. Uh, a lot of times people are not paid. Some uh, excuse is invented towards payday and they're docked for whatever reason um, and just held and sort of some conditions that remind me of sharecropping back in its worst iteration, deep south in the cotton sector. But yeah, we see slavery, we see trafficking um, in Cambodia, in Laos and Burma. There's often child labor and rubber. So it's not just palm oil in Indonesia and Malaysia. It's also rubber in Indonesia. There's thought to be significant child labor and rubber there as well. Study done not too long ago by, um, by the ILO, I think. And then in Latin America, you know, in the cattle industry, um, you also see severe labor rights violations, right? The cattle industry is notorious for having a recurrent problem of scandals with sort of slavery and quasi-slavery of some of its workers. So definitely cattle, cocoa, rubber, palm oil. These are commodities that are often tied to severe labor rights violations, not to mention coffee, of course. The deforestation industry is a really dirty industry. As you said, it's not just trashing the planet, the people that are working in this industry are being, and then the children are being completely exploited. Uh, it seems that this industry is inextricably linked to human rights violations. And perhaps it, it's a great um, 
it's a great example of how, in general, environmental and human rights are really inseparable. And this is nothing new. One of the largest genocides in the world, and unfortunately a genocide that's not officially recognized, was the mutilation and the murder of 10 million Congolese for rubber in the very inaptly named Congo Free State under King Leopold II of Belgium. So looking at our history of, of our, you know, being being the apex predator of the world and also how we treat ourselves, um, it seems that environmental rights and human rights go hand in hand, and we can't address one without addressing the other. I think that there's a dark side of this, but also a bright side. On the dark side, you know, when companies want to do things on the cheap, when their supply chains are shrouded in secrecy, when they obdurately refuse to be transparent and traceable, that's when they go for the cheapest way of doing things in terms of impact on the environment and also on people, right? So the cheapest way to do your business is to just dump chemicals willy-nilly into the water and the air, right? No filters, no worries. The cheapest land is often forest land or indigenous land that you can just steal uh, or cultivate illegally or bribe a local official to get it for your plantation. And the cheapest labor, kids, slaves. So it makes sense that when you're doing things on the cheap in the dark, you have these horrific impacts on both people and planet. But the good news is that you can also think about this from a sort of upward spiral perspective. We're seeing more and more companies adopting cross-cutting reforms. And once they adopt a reform for one commodity for an environmental um, issue, they often tend to also adopt human rights reforms. And the, the, the reverse is true too, right? So, you know, we saw a wave of companies in the last five years in the palm oil sector just flipping over from awful to much better policies on paper, at least, even though they're not perfectly enforced. You know, a lot of these policies include no peat, no deforestation, and no exploitation. And in the last year, since we did our cocoa campaign, we've also seen a wave of major change in the industry where more and more companies are getting serious about both dealing with their deforestation problems and their child labor and other labor rights violations in their supply chain. So on the bright side, you know, when you can change any industry on any point, it will have often a ripple effect for other good things. I agree. We need more transparency and more enforcement. So what are the main supply chain issues with respect to palm oil in particular? I understand the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil has pretty good commitments, but that it's not very well enforced. Now, how can we guarantee that when we buy palm oil, which is in pretty much everything, if you go to the store, it's not just in food products, it's in shampoo and and other uh, household products. So how how can we trust a certification that the palm oil has not come from an illegal plantation? So RSPO is a bit better than nothing. But for the most part, it's a niche endeavor that has really failed across the board to leverage meaningful change in the industry. And 
it is now substantially less ambitious, even on paper, than many industry commitments, right? You have RFPO, the regular RFPO, and then you have RFPO Next. And RFPO Next is a bit more ambitious, but um, RFPO is really trailing the industry, right? In the last five years, we've been able to force almost 80, 90% of the palm oil industry on paper to change their policies to something called no peat, no deforestation, no exploitation, and to join something called the high carbon stock approach, HCSA. That is way more ambitious and way better in terms of where it's aiming for companies to get to than RSPO. So at this point, we're sort of trailing RSPO a little bit like a ball and chain on our feet, um, slowing us down, holding us back. And the second problem with RCO is its enforcement is absolutely pathetic, right? So one of the most notorious cases is Zelda, where the Wall Street Journal did an investigation and found um, slavery and other very serious human rights violations, uh, and subsequently other groups found environmental violations by Felda, and Felda was certified up to wazoo with RSPO, and RSPO acted in a totally inadequate and very slow fashion instead of the robust action we would have wanted to see. You know, the NGOs really had to almost force RSPO to deal with another particularly bad actor, a sort of bad apple rogue company called IOI, and Greenpeace did most of the heavy lifting to force IOI to change its policies and practices, not RSPO. So I would say that certification schemes are, are a great idea in the sense that in theory, they give consumers the power to choose. Okay, I go buy something in the store. I want to put my money where my mouth is. I want to spend a little extra to buy something that I know is going to do good stuff for people and planet. And I want a logo just to tell me it's being certified and monitored. In that sense, I think the certification schemes are really doing a disservice to consumers. They're letting them down. And they're violating the sort of essential spirit of why they came to be in the first place. So it's disturbing to see that RSPO has been so grossly inadequate in palm oil. Just the way, you know, it's disturbing to see that um, fair trade has very low standards for no deforestation practices for cocoa and coffee. And it's disturbing to see that Rainforest Alliance and Oops, which have now fused, um, didn't really have strong enough protections until recently for agroforestry, which we talked about earlier in this podcast. Um, luckily, they're improving, but, you know, the FSC is the certification scheme for a paper. And we had to file two grievances in the FSC because the FSC was asleep at the wheel, letting companies certified that absolutely were violating FSC's terms. So I just would like to ask, why is an NGO like Mighty Earth having to do FSC's work for it? Yeah, that's that's a terrible situation. And you're right, many people trust these certifications. I mean, that's what they're there for. They're there to give consumers the power to choose a product that benefits people and the environment. And when you find out that it's false, I mean, that's like a double whammy, right? <laughs> they're not enforcing what they're meant to do and they're uh, being deceptive to consumers, uh, which is illegal. I do think that there have been a number of great things that have been done by the organic certification schemes, Oots, Rainforest Alliance, Fair Trade, 
FRC and even RSTO in some cases. It's just that, you know, we kind of expected more across the board and particularly from RSTO, which is one of the weakest certification schemes. Yeah, I'm very skeptical. I just don't buy products with palm oil because I don't believe any of the certifications. I think the supply chain just appears to me to be um, very susceptible to manipulation and very hard to enforce right now. And with diligence, people can simply just avoid palm oil. You might like peanut butter. There's peanut butter out there that's organic without palm oil. You'll have to look for it, but uh, it's there. There's shampoo without palm oil. A lot of people have essentially tried to opt out of palm oil, which is tough because, as you said, it's, it's ubiquitous, right? Palm oil is in about 50% of all packaged goods. And it's things that most people kind of know, like, okay, palm oil is in cookies, palm oil is in chocolate. So people didn't know that, you know, palm oil is in breakfast cereal, peanut butter, cleaning products, laundry detergent, lipstick, ink, body lotion, you know, it's everywhere. Part of what makes it so hard to ditch palm oil is that palm oil is often disguised. It's hidden behind ingredient names that you would never recognize. It's hidden under vegetable oil. It's hidden under sodium lauryl sulfate. It's hidden under glycerol stearate. It's got so many names that it hides behind, which companies purposefully deploy in order to bamboozle customers, I believe. It's very, very hard to opt out. One of the reasons that I think opting out is not the answer is that we can't anymore. It's ubiquitous. It's in all of our products. And so we have to change it. You know, it's not enough for the, the best, most informed and you know, most engaged consumers to walk away from it. We've got to do one step more than that. We have to transform that whole industry. Agreed. And and that's actually the same problem with soy because soy appears in a bunch of products that you wouldn't expect it to appear as its derivative. So there's lecithin and so forth. And so we have the same problem, right? Because the soy industry has caused such rampant environmental destruction. You may want to avoid soy in your diet, but you can't unless you look up all the derivatives of soy and know all the various names associated with it, you're not going to be able to have a soy-free diet. The craziest way that soy is hidden in our diet and our life, it's in meat. So you're not eating soy when you're eating meat. What you're doing is you're indirectly eating soy because 70% of soybeans grown in the U.S. are used for animal feed. Poultry is number one, but hogs and dairy cows and and beef that's being raised for meat and even aquaculture fish are fed with soy. And that's similar to around the world, right? Overwhelmingly, soy goes into meat and even aquaculture fish. So the best way to opt out of dirty GMO soy that's laced with chemicals, that's covered with um, glyphosate and other carcinogens that's driving indigenous dis- um, communities to, to destruction of their, their way of life that's, that's killing primary forests is to be vegetarian <laughs> or eat 
meat that has not been fed soy. As a carnivore, grass-fed local meat is probably the most environmental. So, so instead of eating aquaculture fish that's being fed with soy, you can try to go for um, the, the most sustainably caught uh, wild fish, right? Fish that, that got that uh, circle of approval from the Monterey Institute. They have this really handy little thing you can print out and put in your wallet that tells you good fish you can eat. That's true, but I have a question. Mm-hmm. I always thought that farm-raised fish is more environmentally um, sustainable than wild-caught fish because the fish are so depleted in the oceans and that if it's raised on a farm, well, then we're not taking out any fish from the oceans. Now, that is an incorrect assumption. Farm-fed fish can often be worse than wild fish in the sense that um, if it's a carnivore apex predator fish, like salmon, it requires trawlers to go out and fish large quantities of wild fish to feed the salmon, right? Sometimes it's called trash fish. Um, So I guess you could say aquaculture breaks down into good and bad, right? Uh, Aquaculture for apex predator fish like salmon, bad. But aquaculture for vegetarian fish can be quite good. If it's done sustainably, it can be really quite good. And then for wild fish, there's definitely a number of fish populations that have been overfished and that are collapsing or collapsed or on the verge. And you should absolutely avoid those. Um, But there's some wild fish populations that are well managed. Um, And... The, yeah, the best way to know what to do is there's this thing called the Monterey Bay Seafood Card. You can print it out. There's a wallet that has one, a big one. tells you what to get in your sushi or when you're going fishing. They have an app you can put on your, your, uh, your phone. I mean, obviously, the best thing you can do is not eat any fish at all. Now I'd like to concentrate on the positive. What have you found in Mighty Earth? to be the most effective strategy to bring about media awareness and consumer awareness to drive campaigns against companies indirectly to change policies and uh, hopefully the enforcement of their policies and also to directly change company policies. You've entered into various agreements with companies. What have you found to be the most effective strategy? So I guess you could break it down into a couple big categories of things and then we could delve into the weeds if you think it's interesting. You know, essentially what we need to do is shift entire industries. It is not enough to change one company or one place. We're in a, you know, we're facing catastrophic, irreversible climate change. And so entire industries need to shift completely to a zero deforestation model, for example, or a completely renewable energy model, if you're looking at manufacturing heavy industry. So for the ag industry, you've got to get the top players and you need to create a domino effect. So number one is get the top players. Number two, use the leverage of their change to transform the smaller companies underneath them in that little industry ecosystem in a domino effect. And then number three, leverage the industry change to try and get law and policy shifts, right? That wouldn't have been possible before because the industry would have blocked them, but that become possible when industry changes. And sometimes, Actually, those law and policy 
reforms just match the new industry normal. And sometimes they can even outstrip and be better than the new industry normal. And then the last step is enforcement, right? Enforce, enforce, enforce. And to go back to number one, how do you get these top industry players to change? Um, how do you, you know, unlock the beginning of, the, how do you unlock the door to get onto that path that I just described? I've found that the best way to unlock that door to get on the path is to do an investigation into the deepest, darkest, worst secrets in their supply chain and hold them accountable for all to see and leverage media coverage to bring the bright light of day onto their environmental and human rights abuses. So a lot of companies like to pander their environmental uh, efforts, right? Because they know that a lot of consumers like these and will pay more for them. So when you show them that they're being quite deceptive and that they're not going to keep getting these consumers because they're not enforcing their policies, then that keeps them in line. I think it's true that there's a fair amount of um, sort of reputational risk concerns that are looming larger and larger on the horizon of corporate executives. Um, You know, I, I often give credit to the folks that started changing corporate behavior um, through those really creative campaigns to end sweatshop labor. Do you remember that wonderful campaign that targeted Nike for their sweatshops where the, the swish was actually like a whip and the slogan was just do it, but it was really about Nike making these super underpaid, very exploited and abused workers just do the work for these rock bottom outrageous wages. And that movement really created a sea change in the apparel industry. I think, you know, we've seen a couple moments that where the magically wonderful work has just triggered a a change in another industry, like the fantastic Guardian article um, done by Kate Hodal and others on seafood slavery, which began to transform the whole seafood industry. Um, you know, our report that came out on the chocolate industry last year, same thing, it's kind of wave change, a sea change follows that. Like the whole cocoa and chocolate industry has begun to really get in gear and start to, to reform itself. And um, yeah, I'm hopeful that with each of these waves, that each of these waves creates more momentum for an ever bigger tidal wave. You know, you see it even in the investment space, right? The Norwegian pension fund takes a little uh, push um, from uh, environmental NGOs and decides to do the right thing on on forests. And now most recently, it's agreed to do something about its investment in marine plastics. So this huge pension fund, one of the biggest in the world, has with one campaign after another improved its policies, first on forests and on climate change and human rights, and now marine plastics, just one thing after another. And, you know, the Norwegian pension fund also helped embolden the New York Pension Fund and CalPERS to act. So each change within NBIM, the Norwegians, I think is, is, is like a stepping stone to the next. And each pension fund that changes is a stepping stone to overwhelming pension fund reform. And same thing you can say about the banks. You know, you have BNP Paribas taking a big step, HSBC after a campaign by Greenpeace taking a big step. And now the banking sector is looking different than it was. And I feel this real optimism that it's all synergistic. You know, um, consumer-facing companies change, pension funds change, private banks change, 
eventually we're going to see maybe a lot of greenwashing, but also maybe some true heartfelt reforms in how people think uh, in the private sector about what they're doing to our planet. And it'll all become more mutually enforcing, reinforcing, you know, one of the things that's given me most hope just to go from the very general to the very specific is our, our chocolate campaign really asked a lot of companies just to change their cocoa policies. We're asking them to switch over to zero deforestation worldwide, traceability, transparency, monitoring, and agroforestry. But some companies have gone further than that. You know, Godiva and Simwa have now made these cross-commodity commitments where they've not only cleaned up their act for their cocoa policies, but also, you know, other things, palm oil, pulp and paper, soy, sugar. Um, it's really heartening to see that one reform can spill over. Right. So it's the upward spiral. There's the downward spiral we were talking about, but then there's the the upward spiral. And I think it's also be, because companies, I mean, what is a company? It, it is really just a structure on paper, right? It's a jurisprudential animal, a legal fiction, and it's really just made up of people, right? <laughs> it's the fiction of the legal persona that's made up of people. And if we change people's mindset that are working for the company, particularly people that are up the chain and can make uh, the impactful decisions, um, as has happened in some companies, and that's when we see change happening. You see real change happening within people's hearts at the highest level in a way that it, it, it wasn't happening 20 or 30 years ago. So, you know, the CEO of Unilever has been a tremendous force for change, I think, positive change in terms of protecting forests. Uh, the top guys at the Norwegian Pension Fund, the same is true. And, you know, now you see, you know, kids at Yale Business School, they are so much more focused on a, a triple win for profit, people, and planet than an earlier generation. You know, you have classes now at all the top business schools that you just would never have even dreamed of having 20 years ago. I see this as a, a great change. I think young people are the answer. I believe all these young up-and-coming business school graduates who actually do uh, scuba dive and see how coral reefs are dying, who have, um, you know, watched Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth at a, a formative moment when they were young. I see these people as the heroes of the future. You know, I really believe that as they grow into leadership roles in more and more and more companies and banks and pension funds, we are going to be saved by, um, you know, this, uh, this hope and energy and enthusiasm that I see writ large in youth today. So now I'd like to divert to the longstanding North-South debate over forests and whether it's as relevant today as it was a couple of decades ago. Deforestation and commodity agriculture are a large part of some countries' GDP. And even though it benefits, it seems, the elites and not the entire uh, population, arguably Western environmental pleas to these countries appear to sound like a new form of colonialism. We had the development of, you know, the white man's burden, and now we have something that's sustainable development. We're just changing the adjective, but to some ears, development always sounds like colonialism. So some theories, such as the institution of debt sinks, 
can arguably be used as another means to transfer southern lands to the north, even if they have positive environmental impact. What are methods and communications that we in the West can employ to preserve forests? These forests that are so vital to the entire world, but that doesn't smack of colonialism and that doesn't take the initiative away from local populations. It makes sense to me that there might possibly need to be some transfer of resources from the north to the south to protect these forests, uh, particularly given the colonial past. There's so many great things in your question. The first is the north-south divide. The truth is that in the global north, we're still destroying our forests and not doing a very good job at replanting, right? So it's not just a problem in the global south. It's a historical scandal that the United States chopped down so much of its forests. And we absolutely have a tremendous responsibility to replant. You know, you look at Pakistan where Imran Khan had a vision for replanting a billion trees, right? When is the last time that you heard Donald Trump say, we're going to plant a billion trees? Um, so in some cases, you know, the North's lack of ambition for fixing what we continue to do today to destroy our forests and lack of ambition for fixing the historical destruction um, is, 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 is a tremendous embarrassment, right? You know, let's just think about Seattle. Isn't Seattle's nickname Stumptown? I think that's correct. And I believe it was called Stumptown because it was just giant stumps everywhere from us having chopped everything down that we could possibly get our hands on. So the North-South divide needs to be unpacked a little bit. You know, I think it's easy to say we in the North have solved our problem and in the South they haven't. But often in, in America's forests, at least, um, we we have a huge problem with quality of forests and not just quantity. So we plant a lot of really rubbishy forests that are meant to be harvested for toilet paper, for example. But it's not getting us beautiful, intact forest landscapes that we've destroyed. So we in the North need to do better at home as well as doing better abroad. And here's another way that the North-South divide is, is traditionally misunderstood. We are all one because the supply chain connects us. It's not just our shared humanity that connects us. You know, the, the deforestation for soy in Brazil, we're eating it in our chickens, in our chicken McNuggets today in New York City. The deforestation for palm oil in Borneo that happened a couple of years ago is in my lipstick now. And so what's happening in the global South is in fact also in the global north. We, in fact, you could say that we've outsourced our deforestation, but it is ours. So I think there's a, a way in which we need to take responsibility for deforestation in the tropics, um, in Western consuming countries. That's one thing. The second thing is I absolutely believe that we need to transfer um, wealth um, and that we need to transfer funds from the countries that can best afford to protect forests into the countries that can least afford to protect forests. But to be honest, what we mostly need to do is to stop driving the destruction. So it's fine for us to give money with USAID or the Agence Française de Développement or GIZ, but man, that's easy peasy. That's us just sort of patting ourselves on the back and feeling good, like, oh, we're such heroes. We're so charitable. But it's like giving with one hand and taking with the other. 
you know, if Switzerland gives money for West African countries for their forest initiatives, but the Swiss companies are the ones hoovering up the forests by buying the deforestation cocoa, then isn't it better for Switzerland to just fix its consumption practices? So I think the transfer of wealth is absolutely important and must be done, but I actually think it should be done by overhauling our entire supply chains and making them ethical from the ground up. And then the third thing I would say is, you know, there's often this uh, rhetoric from um, governments in the global south, often governments that have very little legitimacy, right? Michel Temer has extremely little legitimacy, for example, in Brazil. They say, oh, you know, the global north is imposing these tree-hugging values on us, but it's really them trying to impoverish us and impose their norms on us. Well, here's a, a fact to take home and think about. The 2015 Hays crisis, directly tied to Indonesia, a uh, deforestation problem, it cost 2% of Indonesia's GDP. That's $16 billion. That's twice what the tsunami cost Indonesia. So, you know, I'm happy to entertain a real dialogue about this issue, but let's remember that, you know, palm oil magnates who basically pay Indonesian authorities to say that palm oil is so great for Indonesia's economy, they don't want us to talk about the fact that 2% of the GDP just got flushed down the toilet because they trashed the rainforest and they didn't pay for that. They just outsourced those costs. And how about all the people who died or who got sick? Did the palm oil companies pay for half a million people in Indonesia getting medical care? No. They just outsourced the cost on the poorest people. So I think the wealth and the development argument is a tricky one. There's definitely good points on all sides, but it has to be unpacked. As I mentioned earlier, and as you explicated so eloquently there, the people of these countries are not getting the benefit of uh, the income, nor are they getting any other benefit because they're closer to the environmental destruction. The public health impact is extensive. It's egregious. When you look at countries as one entity and look at the GDP, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's equitably distributed within the country, right? For example, in Cambodia, you know, the rubber industry might conceivably be increasing the GDP if you just look at it as a macro level investigation. But when you disaggregate that data and you go to the field, is it some Oknya, you know, a high powered friend of Hun Sen, uh, an Oknya who's making the money off of the rubber plantation that he's planted on land that he has stolen from indigenous people? Or is it the indigenous people who are benefiting? Well, it's more likely to be the former than the latter. So we've discussed an intricate web of environmental and human rights violations. We've discussed loss of biodiversity, increase of greenhouse gas emissions, indigenous displacement, labor violations, the public health impact. This is a very dirty industry currently. What do you suggest is, and, and for our audience at home as well, is the next step that we can all take, the most integral next step for a better future um, and a cleaner a, a cleaner industry that, or, or really just, is there a way to just stop deforestation? Can we do it? That's a fantastic question. You know, what's the next step? You remember the philosopher who says, I think, therefore I am, Pascal. 
you could say that modern man today, uh, as I speak to you in 2018, it's not really I think, therefore I am. It's I consume, therefore I am. We are consuming machines. We consume an enormous amount of energy. We consume an enormous amount of food. We consume clothes. We consume furniture. We consume electronics. We're just consuming nonstop. You know, the average listener to your podcast almost certainly is like myself, um, someone who uh, is on the very high end of the world's consumptive pyramid. What if we consume differently? You know, if as consumers we demand traceability, transparency, and environmental and human rights protections, it can have an enormous power. It can have a huge ripple effect. Even though we consume so much, we're so divorced from what we consume. Where were the parts in your computer made? Where was that egg raised that you had for breakfast? How about the coffee that you drank? This morning, did you know the people who grew it, who roasted it, who ground it, who shipped it, who transformed it? You know, unlike our ancestors who were very close to their supply chain and really knew pretty much every actor because it was very local supply chains and, and quite short ones, we now have almost no visibility on, on our supply chains that we're consuming. But that's the key, right? That's how we get international solidarity. That's how we get truth. Once we get truth, we get change. And so as consumers, we have this immense power to vote with our dollars and to change how we consume and therefore change entire supply chains and therefore change entire industries. And that's how you change the world. All right. That sounds like a good next step. I do have, maybe it's a theoretical question, but, and, and I do agree that consumers have a lot of power and that we shouldn't be uh, divorced from our supply chains, but be more informative and uh, and communicate more. But when in the cultural lexicon did we change the public to consumers, to consume as a passive activity, right? And how do we change maybe the lexicon to help propel this new vision of something that is more participatory and um, and proactive? Maybe it's just a theoretical question, but um, it's something that's been percolating for a long time that I used to read about the public, the public, and now I'm just reading about consumers. <laughs> where did the public go? I think where did the public go is a great question. You know, we have become consumers because we consume so much more than our ancestors used to, right? We consume multiple times as much meat, as much sugar. That's part of the reasons why we're all facing these health crises, like obesity, right, diabetes and heart disease. We consume way more energy than our ancestors used to. We consume way more clothes. I think I read somewhere that the average person in America and Europe owns something like 700 items of clothing if you count each sock and hat and glove, et cetera. You know, that's, that would have been unheard of. That would have been something like the kings and queens used to have, right, 700 items of clothing. So we're really... We have become consumers and therefore we must take responsibility for our consumption. And you can think of it as a passive thing, but also an active thing. I embarrass my nephews and drive my family insane with this. But whenever I go shopping, I will literally ask people in the supermarket, oh, how was this 
raised. Do you know if this is deforestation free? Is this humane meat? Is this sustainable, sustainably caught seafood? You know, I'll, I'll go around sort of like saying hi to the people in the supermarket, build a relationship and then start badgering them with these questions. And soon enough, I can build relationships with the managers in the stores. We're like, oh God, this woman's back again. But I mean, the point is, you can be as engaged and proactive a consumer as you want, right? You can sign petitions as a consumer. Uh, like all these companies, Nestle, Unilever, you know, the petitions circulating on all these companies that we're consuming from on Evolve, on some of us, on Care2, moveon.org. I think, um, you know, the environmental groups in RDC often, uh, Sierra Club, uh, Greenpeace, often ask members to, to act as consumers and to be empowered consumers, not disempowered consumers. But you're right. You know, where does the public go? Another way of thinking of ourselves is as voters, right? You can vote with your dollars. You can vote with your ballot. You can vote with your voice. You know, there's so many ways that people can engage however much you want to. You can, if you're in banking, you can think about sustainable banking. If you are in health, you can think about, you know, tweaking, public health systems to take account, uh, take into account environmental concerns more. If you're in almost any industry, you can be part of a positive change. Wherever it is that you work, you can almost always be part of a positive change. So you're right. It's not just as consumers. It's as voters. It's as citizens. It's as workers. We have a lot of power. And we need to use it. We know all the solutions. We have all the technological solutions. We just need to find the will. That's right. That's right. And we are finding the will. Like you said, the youth of today is much more politicized, much more environmentally aware. And um, and that's a good step because they're the ones that are going to be going into the leadership roles and taking us into the future. It's a good thing to see. And it's not just in the global north and the global south. Even there's a massive environmental campaign in Vietnam. Brazil and in Indonesia, yeah, people power all over the place. And I do believe in this youth movement. You know, back home, my, my one of my nephews, I remember when he was quite small, chastised me because I was doing the recycling wrong. He's the one who's been pushing our family to grow vegetables in the garden. I remember I was following him and one of his little friends. Uh, we were on an outing and they were talking about their favorite animals. And one of them said, what's your favorite high altitude mammal? Oh, the Himalayan snow leopard. Wow, I don't even know if I, any high altitude mammal. But you know, these kids had grown up watching Planet Earth. They saw Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. They've been hearing and learning and internalizing environmental messages in a way that maybe older generations have not. And so they kind of, I think, hold the key to the future. They do. And that is the upward spiral that we need. We were talking about downward spirals during a good part of our discussion, but I think it's important to end on the positive and the upward spiral that we're seeing. Absolutely. I see a lot of positive change happening in the soy industry, the palm, the cocoa industry, even rubber now has started to get with the program. And each industry that moves is one step in the right direction. I see banks and pension funds slowly but surely starting to incorporate real environmental safeguards. And I think, you know, with the engaged youth, like we've been talking about, we can hope for a much better um, industrial ag space in the next decade. Fantastic. Yeah, well, let's hope so. 
And let's continue to be informed and engaged and communicate and participate in our public debate and move in a better direction. Thank you so much, Atel, for your time today and for your very insightful input into this pernicious issue, but with positive aspects too. It was a pleasure. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.